Thank you, Eli. Onward, Christian soldiers. That's one you haven't heard in a while. Amen. Thanks, Eli, for playing that for us. Good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and it's good to be worshiping together. If you are uh, have a little one or, or would like to be dismissed and have them dismissed downstairs to our children's church up through grade six, four years old through grade six, you can be dismissed at this time. Thank you, teachers, for serving down there, giving your lives away. If you're not currently serving somewhere, you're looking for a place to serve, that might be one of those places that you can plug in. Come see me after the close of the service. We'd love to have you uh, as part of uh, our ministry team here. And uh, even in the days of summer, we still are in need of uh, many places to be filled. Before uh, we get into our service, uh, our time of teaching today, just to kind of spin off what Jim just said about the gospel, I just want to let you know, to make you feel comfortable, John's going to come up and answer a number of questions. You'll find also some questions answered in your bulletin in the insert. Uh, but we also have uh, published a guide to help you witness. We have, we'll have tracks available to you and a guide to help you witness a trifold where the answer that you receive from someone will lead you to a response. And so you can look over that before Saturday. You can feel more comfortable as you adjust. But I want to remind you, what is the gospel? Uh, it's not a mystery. It, Jim, as Jim pointed out, it is the good news. And uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, in fact, turn there if you would, and then you're going to turn back to uh, John 19. But uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, says this. I want you to see this. This is very simple. And remember that you have all that you need. Uh, you have the ability, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, all utterance. You have all utterance and all knowledge to witness uh, the gospel. Here's the gospel. And this is so great, so simple. Listen to what it says. Verse 1. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, there it is, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you were a false profession. Now, what is that, Paul? What, what is it that you gave to us? Here it is. Okay, very simple. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the gospel, this is what they, they received, this is what uh, they believe, and this is how they were saved. Uh, first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. There it is. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's how you came to faith, right? You understood that, and you believed Christ died for your sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, which gave him power over death. Correct? And so that is the good news. What's the good news? You're lost in your sin. You do acts of sin every single day and prove that you're lost. Christ died according to the scriptures for your sin, and your sin can be forgiven. That's it. Now, will there be questions? Sure. Will you be able to answer them? Without a doubt. Because the Lord's going to ordain all those opportunities, just like he does every day for you, as you interact with unsaved people, will you have opportunity to give the gospel out, and you'll be able to answer back according to your, uh, your gift set, according to your experience. Uh, you can do my story, your story, that kind of thing, so that you can explain how you came to faith. You have your testimony together. If you've been baptized here, if you've come to faith here, you've already put together your testimony. And so you know how to give that, and you know what you should have there. And so let me encourage you. This is, this is something you can do. It's something, no doubt, causes some anxiety. This is where, really, the front line of the battle is. Churches grow by conversion. And that's where we're supposed to be at work. So we've been given the Great Commission. It's a simple message, and you can have it. And Paul gave it to us, all right? Now, all that was for free. That's not on, that's not on the books, okay? So that's uh, in it, you know, uh, we're clocking in now, all right? So if you would, turn to, first, uh, turn to uh, Matthew 19, if you would. Matthew 19. 
We are continuing in a series through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and, and as we think about God's plan for a healthy church, because that is our overall title for our message, God's plan for a healthy church. And as we landed in verse 12 of chapter 6, and going all the way through the end of chapter 7, our fourth stop, Paul is dealing with the use of the body, he's dealing with singleness, he's dealing with marriage, and so he must deal with errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And so he's, God wants a healthy church, there are some errors there in the Corinthian church, and some unsure places, and so he is shoring those things up. And over the last three weeks, we have taken some time to lay a foundation of God's instruction for human relationships, because Paul is going to have uh, some assumed knowledge there in Corinth, and I want to make sure we have the same assume knowledge as we hear Paul's instruction to the church. And so Paul is going to refer to a number of the things that we've been looking at, uh, but he's not specifically going to teach on them. And so the survey of some of God's instructions on these topics is going to give us an understanding of the context of this Corinthian church. And also, I think, all by itself, it's very beneficial to us in its own right, apart from that understanding, as we read and refresh our mind especially in light of all the things that are going on in our culture, what God's plan is and how it actually works out. Now, we've spent the majority of our time laying the groundwork, working our way through a complementary section of Scripture found in Matthew 19. So I'd like you to turn there, if you would. And last time, we made it through all the way to verse 10. And so look at verse 10. We're going to just kind of review just for about two minutes here on what we've looked at already. But from verses 1 through 9, we saw the basics of human relationships are really found at creation. That's a very simple answer, although society was much more complex in Jesus' day than it was, obviously, in the Garden of Eden with two people. Jesus refers right back to it and says God hasn't changed his plan one bit. This is the original creation, one man, one woman, male and female, the two become one flesh. And so, very direct, very important, Jesus goes back and he answers those things. And so, really, the idea is, as we have these questions come up, uh, that our understanding and our, our, the way we can communicate this is this. Um, what did God say? What did God intend? What did he command? Those are still true for today, even though society has changed, still exactly the same truth that God gave at the beginning. Those things are still true today for human happiness and holiness and fulfillment. And we covered some important instructions for marriage and the rules governing divorce and divorced individuals. Now, we're going to see that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so that's why we're laying this foundation, and it's going to help us as we get to seven, verse, uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians to understand what Paul is saying to them and all the things that are behind that. Now, as Jesus finishes up his teaching on marriage and divorce here in, in Matthew 19, uh, he, after he answers the Pharisees' questions, they, they have two, uh, first one trying to trap him, second one try, acts as if he hadn't given an answer at all and just looking for the exception, and we looked at all that, and you can catch up with that online because we won't go back over it, but look at verse 10 if you would. The disciples said to him, and remember, as we said last time, where we ended up last time, the Pharisees are no longer in this conversation. Either they were embarrassed because they were shown to commit adultery all over the place, or perhaps the disciples, as Mark tells us, went into a house and began discussion over a meal, and the Pharisees weren't invited. One of the two, probably both together, they just kind of faded off, and they kind of isolated themselves because Jesus wanted to give his disciples a chance to ask some questions. And so verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Now, what are they saying? You know, if you get into this marriage thing and you can't get out of it, uh, except for adultery, then it would be better if you never got into it. Right? That's what they're saying to Jesus. Is this right? And, and to be joined to a wife or a husband, 
because uh, the, the Bible is associated around a male gender orientation. So either way, a wife to be joined to a husband, a husband to be joined to a wife, and only the spouse's adultery releases you from that marriage, uh, being forced to tolerate all the vices, all the idiosyncrasies, uh, the irreconcilable differences, the fact that she cuts her hair or she doesn't cut her hair or whatever it is, okay? The fact that you're going to have to uh, put up with him, you know, snoring and, and leaving his beard clippings all over the uh, sink or, or whatever all of your life, it would be better not to marry, right? You're stuck. And so they're saying, listen, this, it'd be much better just to stay single. It's better... And they understood, and here's the thing, when they said that, the first part is true. They understood exactly what Christ was saying, that it is for life, that you're stuck together, if you want to look at it that way. We look at it more like bound together in this wonderful relationship First Peter 3, 7 talks about, but you're together. So they understood what he was saying, but they weren't right about their conclusion. It's not automatically better to be single, as we saw last time. And so we looked at some various passages dealing with the blessedness of marriage to kind of close out our time together last time. And really what the world needs to know as we look at these passages is really what the disciples needed to know, and that is that uh, marriage is a lifelong commitment, and that isn't a reason to avoid it. That's a reason to get into it. And so it's the opposite approach. Uh, the final conclusion is, because it's like this, that's the reason why you want to get into it, because God designed this for the good of people. Because in the wonderful reality of that lifelong relationship, God's able to show the world a picture of something of his own nature. Uh, forgiveness and selfless love and intimacy and also uh, inside that lifelong relationship, he's able to bless you in ways that he wouldn't be able to bless you as a single person. So, you know, look at marriage the way the disciples did. Uh, if we do that, uh, we're going to have some problems. But if you understand it the way Jesus has presented it in the, the context of the joy that is marriage, uh, marriage is a consecrated thing. It's the most wonderful gift that God can give next to salvation. And because of that, we shouldn't run away from marriage. We should run toward marriage and not so that someone can fulfill some romantic longing in you uh, and chase after emotion and chase after euphoria. Because if that's the reason why you're chasing after marriage, you are dead in the water before you start. But just to follow up what we said last week about the blessedness of marriage, there are some biblical reasons for marriage, and I want to talk to, about them before we get into the last two verses of Matthew 19, uh, because that's going to talk about singleness and the gift of singleness. And so there are some reasons why people get married. There are some reasons, the biblical reasons, why uh, God has given marriage. And as you think through this process of marriage, as you think through as we move into 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll do that right at the end of the message today if we have time, so as you think about that, I want you to be thinking about some of the blessed parts uh, that God has planned for marriage. And so you can find this in your notes, biblical uh, reasons for marriage, biblical plan behind marriage, why this is important. It's also going to help us as we finish our passage today. And so I'm going to give them to you, and I'm just going to do them quickly and give you some scriptures to go with them. And you, there's room in your notes there for you can jot, you can jot down some things, some thoughts. And I told you last week, as, we, as our culture thinks about getting married, uh, to fulfill some kind of romantic longing, some emotional need, you'll notice that those are not necessarily included here, but there are fringe benefits of the things that are here. But what I want to see is just quickly some of these things that the Scripture talks about as it talks about marriage. Number one, marriage is a portrait. What's it a portrait of? Well, it's a portrait of uh, Christ and the church. Ephesians 5:25 and 32 through 33, which you'll see on the screen behind me, and the, the underlined portion is in the title. And so you can put that in your notes. Marriage is a portrait. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her. So there's that comparison. There's that example. Uh, verse 32, this mystery is great. 
what mystery? This mystery of Christ in the church, this mystery of uh, two people coming together and becoming one. But I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, we talked about that more a couple of weeks ago. I won't go back into it again. The selfless love of a wife, uh, of a husband for the wife, uh, the uh, mutual submission that occurs as we uh, looked at verse 21 of Ephesians 5, and all that stuff is all part of that wonderful dynamic. But it's a vivid representation of, to the world of the selfless love that Christ has for the church. Uh, that's ongoing, a committed, faithful relationship with a bride that he loves, a bride for whom he would die. Okay? And so, a mar marvelous portrait. That's what marriage is for. Number two, marriage is for helping. Marriage is for helping. Genesis 2.18. Uh, we are not supposed to do things alone. We were made to do them together. That's exactly the words of Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, as uh, God looked at Adam in the garden. And then the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God created marriage for someone to come alongside and help. There's strength in the union, isn't there? And if you've been married a while and, and that marriage is beginning to take on that reprint of Christ, you know that. Men, you should be able to say that your wife is strong where you are weak. And you, if you can't admit that, uh, it's just that you are missing one of the great benefits God has ordained in marriage, all because of your pride and your lack of humility, to be frank. All because uh, there are areas where you are weak and she can be your strength there. And men, you will tend to be strong where she is weak and so you shore each other up. My wife is a strength to my weakness and she tells me what I need to be told. And if she didn't, she wouldn't be my strength and weakness. And uh, if I don't listen, it's usually to my own disaster. So she knows me and there's a real partnership there. Uh, in the family, I do what the Lord has required me to do, and she does what the Lord's required her to do, and there's this wonderful dynamic that goes back and forth between us. Number three, marriage is for meeting needs, uh, providing for the other. Marriage is for meeting needs. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, uh, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Men, you're given that job of nourishing and cherishing your wife and taking care of those needs. The marriage is meeting the needs of security and caring and nourishing and cherishing and supporting. That's the things that you do, men, for your wife, and your wife also does back for you. Additionally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, a marvelous one that I've referenced already. Your husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel. Uh, so you have to know her, you have to know how she thinks, you need, you need to give understanding to her because she's not like you, and the scripture says as a weaker vessel, you give her understanding, you give her uh, a way to live that she can operate as, she, as a woman as God has created her. Uh, the idea of how uh, you would handle something very valuable, that's the essence of it, something vulnerable to injury, marriage is a concern, marriage is a care uh, for the other person and for the meeting needs of a weaker vessel, men. And so that she can carry out her duties the Lord has given her in childbearing and raising godly children and all the things that go along with being a godly wife, men. And if you're not doing these things, you'll find that your wife is not becoming uh, blossoming out and, and taking on the ministries that she could take on. She is becoming more closed and more isolated. That's not what you want, see? You want to provide that uh, place here for her to flourish. And that's how you do that, and you follow these scriptural instructions to do that. And if you're not sure what to do, go back and read these again, and that'll help you. Additionally, 1 Timothy 5.8 uh, just very straightforward, just uh, in general, uh, working hard to take care of them. Uh, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that's a pretty strong indictment. 
So you've got to work hard. You've got to make sure there is enough there for the need of your household. And if you don't do that, worse than an, un an unbeliever in testimony. So uh, marriage is for meeting needs. Reason number four, marriage is for having children. Marriage is for having children. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created them. Uh, verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God established marriage to produce children. Some people say, oh, the world's too full now. And I say to you that you have believed a lie. And it comes from Satan to convince and contravene, uh, convince people and contravene what God has commanded. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, did you know that every person alive today can fit inside the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida? Two times. Every person on the face of the planet. Did you know that? It's true. 18 billion square feet of space inside the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. Now, it would be quite close, okay? So if it's crowded where you live, move. But the fact of the matter is that God said, be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing. And so don't believe the lie that the world's too full now, okay? Marriage was designed for children, and I think uh, you come away certainly with that understanding from Psalm 127, verse 3. If you understand this passage at all, you understand that they are a gift from the Lord, full, a fruit from the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Just a general way of expressing the blessedness of children. If the Lord has allowed you to have children, you understand that blessedness. They are a binding element on the marriage, a place where you can invest yourself, give your life away, uh, learning a little bit of what your Heavenly Father feels when you interact with Him by interacting with your children, uh, both in the disobedience and the sorrow you feel and, and also the joy that you feel when you have the spontaneous, I love you, daddy, my dad can do it, those kinds of things, which are exactly how we refer to our own father. My father can do this. I, I'm very secure in the knowledge that my, my heavenly father is able to do those things, just like your children see that image as you portray that image of Christ to them, that you can do it. So God sees us as one when we covenant together. If we looked at Malachi, Everyone else gets to see a very clear picture of two becoming one in the faces of children as God provides them to you. Number five, marriage is for delight and enjoyment. Delight and enjoyment. Old Testament, of certainly Proverbs 5, 15 and following. You can read that on your own. Song of Solomon, many other places talk about the satisfaction of the physical relationship in marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is undefiled. You can't do anything in that place that's defiling. It's great freedom there and great joy that the Lord has provided for delight. And of course, additionally, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, this is a marvelous passage as well. It's very clear about that. The husband uh, must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Speaking of physical intimacy there, uh, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. Once again, physical intimacy there is in, in view except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Your body's not yours. Uh, her body's not hers. Men, uh, they belong to each other. And marriage is for that delight, for enjoyment. God knows that. He made it for that purpose. And so that's a, a wonderful thing to think about. So marriage is, is creating a portrait. Marriage is for helping. We're not supposed to do things alone. God said it's not good to be alone, uh, meeting the needs and providing for others. That's part of marriage. Uh, having children is part of the marriage. Delight and enjoyment physically is part of that marriage. And finally, marriage was created for purity, for purity, for holy living. 
think that's exactly what Paul's answering as we get to 1 Corinthians 7.2, and we'll look at that uh, next time. But 1 Corinthians 7.2, it says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Because the world is full of immoralities, because the culture has many temptations, because where they lived in Corinth was a culture of corruptness, of sexuality, and, and a sexualized culture, because of immoralities, because that's the case, because this is the culture we live in, because it's always been that way to some extent since we get a couple chapters into cre after creation. Because of that, then marriage uh, is there. A man to have his own wife, each woman to ha have her own husband. Because those are the things. Marriage is for holy living. It should be a blessed, a rewarding, full of faithfulness. Uh, and those are not reasons to run away from marriage. Those are reasons to run toward marriage. And when you get in it, make sure you get in it for the right reasons. As we saw last time, make sure it's with the right person. Because there's going to come a time when you won't remember what you used to look like. You might not even remember your spouse's name. But character traits and common goals and, and a God-centered relationship will still be there, see. And so that, once again, reflects God's nature and its permanence, its forgiveness, its long-suffering, all the marvelous parts that we rely on to maintain a relationship with this Holy Lord in a physical body. We get to see some of those inside the character of marriage, creating a portrait, helping, meeting needs, having children, delight and enjoyment physically, and for purity. And so... Uh, that really leads us to the remaining two verses of our passage in Matthew's Gospel. I'd like you to look there if you would. And Jesus is going to answer the questions on singleness. Uh, as the disciples have asked some questions and made a statement, he's going to make some very important statements. But we'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. We haven't done that in a little while. And that'll take us right into our time together as we uh, finish this passage up. Now look at verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat in front of you. Uh, or just read your copy that you memorize and read all the time, and I'll keep you uh, with verses together with us. Now, it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Reading in Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Verse 4, and he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, so then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Verse 10, The disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Now last week we saw the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching on marriage. Now what does Jesus say to their reaction? Uh, verse 11, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement. What statement? Well, the, the statement, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. That statement. Not all men can accept that statement. Jesus is suggesting that is a nice idea to just stay single, but you won't get into a relationship, uh, if you stay single, you won't get into a relationship that you can't get out of. But Jesus says 
Not everybody can do that. Not everyone is able to handle that. Verse 11, that's the last part, but only those to whom, here it is, it has been given. And you were probably aware then, right there, that singleness, from the scripture's perspective, is a gift. It's given to a person. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if it isn't given to you, then you won't be able to handle singleness. So what the disciples said about marriage will not be true if you don't have the gift of singleness. It's not going to be the best thing for you. Uh, Someone might not get married because they don't want to make a commitment. And all that's going to happen is this. You're going to constantly be in this roller coaster of emotions and be tempted with multiple illicit thoughts, if not actions, for the rest of your life. Because of immorality, every man should have a wife, every wife should have a husband. So you're going to be in this roller coaster. Marriage is for most people. That's what Jesus means. Not everyone can take this statement that it's better to stay single. And then Jesus elaborates on what he means about the singleness being given. Look at verse 12, if you would. For there are eunuchs who were, made, who were born that way from their mother's womb. Let's stop right there. And that, of course, would mean, and we'll just uh, sum these up, they have an inability to have an intimate physical relationship because of something congenital. So they're born with the inability to do this. Uh, they wouldn't have ability, perhaps no desire as well. So they can handle singleness. So Jesus is giving people who can handle reasons for people to handle singleness. And this is given. Next part of verse 12. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And we know that practice mentioned here. It's been practiced since the earliest of times uh, for harem use, uh, for punishment, for court use. It's happened in pagan religious rituals, thinking that somehow that act uh, will making a person in, unable to have a physical, intimate relationship was somehow going to please the gods they worshipped. Jesus says that they can handle singleness. Uh, that's probably what happened to Daniel and his friends as they were deported to serve Nebuchadnezzar's court. We talked about that in our study of Daniel. In fact, that's how Daniel is referred to. It means a court official, but the word in Hebrew is eunuch, and so perhaps that is what happened to Daniel. So two reasons, born that way with an inability to have a physical relationship, Uh, Number two, made that way by men. Look at the rest of verse 12. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So this is not something congenital. This is not because of surgery from men, uh, other men, or from yourself. This is because of dedication and commitment. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Uh, They do not get married for God's sake. See, for God's sake. Now, that's given to certain people, according to verse 11. Now, Jesus answers, not everyone can accept this teaching, but God has made some able to accept it. There are different reasons why some men do not marry. This is New Century Version. I like this because it gives the sense of it. Not everyone can accept this teaching, but God has made some able to accept it. There are different reasons why some men do not marry. Some men were born without the ability to become fathers. Uh, others were made that way later in life by other people. And some men have, been given, up, have given up marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. And that just as a side note, did you notice that there are only those three groups? And they're all, according to Jesus in verse 11, given. Those that cannot marry because of heredity, uh, those that uh, cannot because of the physical actions of men, and those who don't because of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think that you'll notice there's no one listed there that is single, just because they don't want to make a covenant with someone that they have to honor forever. No one's listed there in that category. That type of singleness leaves you with problems that are much worse. 
And we've talked about it before, the roller coaster of emotion, the constant temptation that to be married and to have a physical relationship outside of marriage, okay? So only those three categories, not the one that many people give for not getting married, that's not listed there at all. So we can say then to those who are single, Paul speaks about the gift of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And once again, we can see how the laying of the groundwork here is going to help us understand chapter 7. We'll talk about it more next time. But verse 7 says this, Yet I wish, as Paul evaluates the situation between marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, never been married, he says this, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Each man has a gift from God. Paul was single. Likely his wife left him. Many scholars think that's the case. Regardless of whether she died or left, he is single. And so he says, I wish that all men were even as myself am. But he recognizes the same thing that Jesus taught in Matthew 19, which is that it's a gift to be single. Uh, marriage is a gift. We saw that. A wife is a gift from the Lord. Um, children are a gift, an inheritance. And singleness is a gift. And each man has his gift from God, some, one this and one that. Okay? So Paul noted, now listen, that ability to be single was a gift from God. It allowed him a special liberty, a freedom to serve God. And he's going to talk about that more. But Paul knew that because it was a gift, not all believers would have it. He didn't expect all who were single to stay that way. So single person then, if you sense you have a singleness from God and you feel no need to marry, and along with that, you sense the Lord's leading you into service for him as a single person, and then that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. The Lord has established that for you and has laid out that path and put that before you. That's a marvelous thing. That's a gift from the Lord to you. And it's apart from the majority, which the majority is marriage. Now, hold your finger here and turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 7.32. I want you to see how important this is as we look at this. 1 Corinthians 7.32, and you'll see many of these things that Paul, uh, that Jesus has said, Paul is saying, and he's not giving the background, and we're getting the background. So now you can see, you can kind of fill up all of these things. Look at verse 32, if you would. Paul says this, now he, once again, he's giving some instruction, but he doesn't want them to worry, okay? So he says, I want you to be free from concern. Right? Don't be worried about the situation that you're in, in other words. I, don't be concerned about this. I'm going to give you this instruction. See where we are, verse 32? I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. And once again, this is in, from the male perspective, but it could be her, could be there, she. Uh, the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Verse 33, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Verse 34, and his interests are divided, obviously, because between serving the Lord and taking care of a wife, that's a lot. And so if you're loving the wife like Christ loved the church, then you're going to be giving wholeheartedly to her. And also you're going to be giving yourself away in the church because there's no pass on that. You still are giving yourself away, so your interests are divided. That's not a bad thing. Paul says, don't be concerned about this. This is how it is, okay? Now he says this, look at the last part of verse 33, the woman who is unmarried, now we're going to talk about this, but I'm just going to define it quickly for you. I'll give you the background uh, later. When he says someone who's unmarried, okay, that is someone who has been divorced or someone whose husband has died or someone whose husband has left, okay? Those three things would create a situation where the person was unmarried. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to see that if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. So that could create the situation where you're unmarried. You're going to see also that, uh, and we're from Romans 7, if the husband dies, the woman is no longer bound, and so she would be unmarried. 
And then also, if there's a biblical divorce, there's been adultery on the other side, that person could be, that woman could be unmarried. And the reason why we say this is there's one category left. What is it? And the virgin, which just means someone who has never been married. So has never had an intimate relationship, which is implied in the Bible. If you're not been married, you're supposed to be a virgin. That's a good thing, okay? And so he says, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. And once again, he wants to encourage them. He's not trying to tear them down or say the position that you're in is bad. He just says, look, verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Don't be concerned about this. And I'm just telling you how it is, Paul says. And so each man has his gift, one this gift, one another gift. And this is how I am. And I wish that people were like me, but I understand that that's not how it is, he says. Okay, so understand he's saying this for your benefit. All right, this is how it works out in the real world. So if you have a gift of singleness, you're free to give your life in service for Christ. That's Paul's summation. Uh, your total devotion will be to the kingdom because that's implied again, not half devotion to the world, not consumer the things of the world, it's consumer the things of the kingdom. But that's the only reason Paul gives to be single other than the physical inability that we saw in Matthew 19 that Jesus gave. So we're not supposed to avoid marriage because of commitment only if we're not able to marry, or only if we are given the ability to choose not to for the sake of the kingdom, which will come also with that. No desire to marry, and not a desire for physical intimate relationships, not bombarded constantly with, with temptations to be married, or temptations to, to act, on, uh, act on lust, okay? So, and you know, my wife and I, and perhaps you do as well, we know numerous folks, uh, both here and abroad, who are single, who are unbelievably great examples of exactly what Paul just got through saying. Uh, we have some very dear friends who are on the mission field who are single, and they do a marvelous work. They are consumed with the, the work of the kingdom, and the Lord has given them that ability to be single, and support level has, it doesn't have to be large. They are able to do a lot for the kingdom. They're committed and devoted to it. They are the wonderful poster, poster uh, people for this very passage and how this undivided attention given to the things of Christ is so marvelous. And I just, I look forward to seeing them receive the reward when they get to heaven. The, all the stuff that they have done and the sacrifices they've made uh, marvelously, joyously for the kingdom as a single person has been amazing. And so that's going to be just rejoicing for us as we watch that. But if you're single, listen, and constantly battling with a desire to be married or constantly battling with temptations to immorality, then I would suggest to you that you do not have the gift of singleness. Okay? And perhaps you should open your heart to someone with common goals and a strong faith and a commitment to the word and a number of other things that we saw last time. You can check with that online, things that you should be looking at and not creating this, uh, this list of categories that's seasoned by what the culture says that person should look like and have character traits that look like the icons that we seem to uh, uh, promote as great, okay? But instead what uh, the Lord says is great in his eyes and many passages help to firm that up. We won't look at them today. Now, Look back at the end of Matthew 19 and verse 12. We're going to finish up the passage. And here's what Jesus says. So he answers their question. He says, listen, you know, everybody being single, not everybody can handle that. Uh, some people are not going to be able to handle that. Only to whom it's given will you be able to handle that. Congenital, made that way by men, or single because of the cause of the kingdom. And so then he says this. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Accept what? Well, all the teaching about marriage, yes, about singleness, yes, 
Uh, marriage is for life, no divorce, then it's better to be single. No, Jesus says, uh, not everyone can handle singleness. Most people are made for marriage. Uh, singleness is a gift from God to those who are able to serve him in this unique way. So this comment at the end of verse 12, I think is very important. Jesus knows not everyone's going to be able to hand, uh, hear what he says. What if we went and you know, taught these principles, say, at the University of Virginia? Like we were invited to come in and guest lecture, and you're talking to the psychology department or perhaps a, a family development department, and you, you went in there, you know, you just said, you know, um, you know, one man for one woman, God created male and female, and, and it was, this is the no other options, and, and uh, this is what marriage is for, and all that stuff. And you, you laughed off the place. They looked at you like you had two heads. Not everyone can accept these things. It doesn't mean that they're not true. It just means not everyone's going to be able to accept it. They're not able to receive that message. Uh, there is no love for Christ and so in many of those places. And so uh, that's really the test for everything we teach from the Word of God. The application will be in direct proportion to the relationship between the recipient of the Word and the Master. It's always that way, see, and that's where you don't know how I hook up with that and I don't know how you hook up with that. The bottom line is this. The application to what we say is always going to be in direct proportion to the relationship between the recipient of the Word and the Master. If there's a love there, a committed relationship between you and your master, then what comes from the word will be imperative for you to follow. And the more you fall in love with him, uh, the more you fall in love with Christ, the more he is exactly where he needs to be, seated high on the throne of your life, the more you will be submitted to what um, the word says, and the more I will as well. Now, for those of you who have resisted marriage for the same reasons the disciples said, you've resisted it because you're not sure about a lifelong covenant, that scares you away. Let me encourage you to chase after it, not run from it. One man created for one woman. Powerful link. God's the craftsman of marriage. And he creates a portrait. It creates a situation where we're helping one another. It creates a meeting of needs and providing for the other. It creates an opportunity to have children, which are a gift from the Lord. It creates a delight and enjoyment physically. And marriage was created for purity and holy living. Those are all good things and reasons why Jesus wanted to make sure the disciples understood they should run to it. Now, just in the time remaining, you probably notice Matthew 19 doesn't deal with what happens if you receive Christ and your background in marriage is messed up, like you're living with someone or you've been married three times, or what happens if you are married to an unsafe spouse? What happens now if I'm already divorced and my spouse or my spouse has passed away? What should I do? Is the Bible? What does the Bible say about that? And remember, as I told you before, the Bible always assumes remarriage. Then. Here's the question. Am I free to remarry? And Matthew 19 just affirms God's ideal. Jesus doesn't deal with all the exceptions and every possible circumstance that we would find in life. And if we've missed that ideal for one reason or another, we need a place we can turn. And one of those places is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I'd like you to turn there, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll just get our feet wet, the time we have remaining, and take a look at some uh, context connected with this Roman culture. And we've tapped this passage already numerous times because it connects very well with Matthew 19. So let's look at it in some more detail and answer some contextual questions as we begin to wrap up our time today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I told you last time, and numerous times I've, I've mentioned this to you, and you know this, the epistles are really commentary on the teachings of Jesus in the context of the structure and form of the new church. So the epistles begin to address the issues as Jesus has taught and established the church. The epistles then deal with the issues that come up when a whole bunch of people get saved and get together and get in, in one place. 
And so the epistles comment on that. And so once again, we have that opportunity as we look at the epistles to see how uh, those who wrote them direct the church to follow Jesus's commands. And so they're carried along by the Holy Spirit as Paul is. And so this is what's happening here, commenting on the teachings of Jesus and putting them to work inside the church. And here's where many times the writers had to deal with a mess. Uh, many of the epistles, Corinthians included, are not dealing with Jewish people they, who had the Mosaic law to live by, so they had some structure behind them, some moral instruction, uh, some things that the Lord had laid down from the beginning. Many of these people had no such background. And Paul here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is addressing a myriad of problems uh, with the authority given to him by the Lord. And what he says then is equal to what the Lord says, and that's important to remember because Paul was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God, listen, beloved, does not disagree with God the Father, just to clarify that. Because occasionally Paul will say this. Paul will say, and you'll read it through, and perhaps you've seen this already. He'll say, not I, but the Lord, like he did at the end of chapter 10, or verse 10, rather. Simply to say, the Lord has already said this. I'm just repeating it to you. So when he says, not I, but the Lord, just remember, he just says, listen, you already have this from the Lord. This is, I'm just going to tell you what the Lord has already said. And occasionally Paul will say, I, not the Lord, say this. And simply to say that the Lord has not said this already, this is going to be new for you. So you haven't already read this, so get ready. This is going to be new stuff that you need to take note of. Now Paul confirms that to us in verse 25 where he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, yet, he says, I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Did you catch that? Verse 25, chapter 7, he says this. Now, concerning virgins, those are, ones, uh, those are people who have never been married. Okay, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Just confirming what we said earlier. It's not a suggestion that Paul's giving uh, you know, human opinion or the antithesis of inspiration. Okay, Because Paul's saying it, so the Holy Spirit's not saying it. He's not saying that at all. It was just to say that God has not given a command on this issue, and Jesus hadn't spoken on this matter, so Paul, by the Holy Spirit, was giving instruction to us. Okay? So Paul's not disagreeing with the Holy Spirit. There's not some conflict there as, as we come in and we say, not I but the Lord, or I not the Lord say, or I have no commandment from God. It's no contradiction. I'm not saying inspiration must not be have taken place. Paul's just kind of waxing eloquent on his own and kind of branching off and think, saying what he thinks. He's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 40, Paul wraps it up with the same thought. According to my judgment, Paul says, I also have the Spirit of God. So I think we can understand that without going any further at this point, especially if we draw on our time spent on how to get the most from your Bible study. And if you haven't, uh, you weren't here for that study, you can catch up with that online. And we looked at inspiration and we looked at what it means and how it works. So Paul's dealing with a mess. And in fact, as I told you before, Corinth was very much like our own culture. In fact, uh, the word, a verb, to Corinthianize in Greek means to commit sexual sin. And if you wanted to refer to someone as vile and wicked, you would just call them a Corinthian. So a church was started in this place. There's this little island of salvation in the midst of the sea of immorality. And so they are not coming out of a background where they had this understanding of what was moral, like the Jewish people would have with the Mosaic law. And so you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, and this is what you read. Now look there with me if you would. Paul says this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So right away we have a clue that Paul had received some kind of communication in letter form from the church in Corinth. And so he's going to address it. And the way you figure out chapter 7, and the key really is figuring out all the questions. 
Uh, you have to work backwards from the answer because that's all Paul gives, just the answers. But when you figure out the questions then, you get a very rich perspective on the passage. And they would have had a number of questions, and we've talked about them already. Um, and we just mentioned them before. What happens if I'm, I'm living with someone? What happens if my spouse is unsafe? What happens you know, with this whole sexual relationship, with all the background that we have with it? Is this good or bad? And so I want to give you just a little bit more background on these people because it's going to give you a lot uh, greater understanding of perhaps some of the questions that are going to be fired at Paul uh, as he uh, begins to read this communication from them. And you can add this to what you've learned already. Uh, you have all these people coming to Christ, so many different backgrounds, and then in this Roman society, you had really four different types of living arrangements that connected the woman and the man. And some of them were under the power or the manis of her husband, and one was not under the power of her husband, but was still considered a marriage relationship in the Roman culture. Let's look at a, a few of them. Uh, you had for noble families, confariatio, and that would have been uh, much like our weddings today. You would have had a contract between two people. There was a covenant, there were witnesses, rings exchanged, and you know one of their wise sages, that's where we got this third finger uh, or, or uh, the ring finger on this left hand because he said that it, there was a special nerve that connected this finger to your heart. And so that's where they went on. And so they had these rings that are exchanged and vows are spoken and there were prayers said to the goddess Juno. And there are many such pictures of ancient times depicting this ceremony. Um, there's a fragment of a sarcophagus uh, from the second century showing a couple holding hands. The man's holding the scroll, that's the marriage contract. Uh, the goddess Juno is between them, joining them in marriage. Uh, they had a cake, they held hands, they had wreaths, they had all this kind of stuff. And all through the Roman Catholic Church, on down through the Reformation, and into the Protestant churches, there are ceremonies like this. And of course, the Baptists as well have uh, ceremonies that have to do or have some kind of connection to confariatio. There was a lot of divorce, as we looked at already. Uh, women's liberation is at work in the Roman kingdom. Uh, those things we've talked about before, perhaps multiple marriages, uh, concubines, mistresses, people getting saved from all of that background and coming into the church. They've got questions for Paul, and it's not as, it's not as easy as just, okay, here's God's ideal, and you've never been married, so here's what God says. So as you evaluate it, understand you may have the gift of singleness, uh, maybe you've been, uh, it's been forced on you, perhaps by someone, perhaps uh, you were born this way, uh, whatever it is but marriage is for life, and God set it up. So you don't have that background. So you have these backgrounds, all right? Next one, uh, you had coemptio relationship, and that's the sale of a woman to her husband. You have a failing business, for instance, and you have a daughter. So you have the solution. You sell your daughter, you get the money you need to, to keep your business going, pay your bills, bail out the business, whatever. No love in the relationship. It's a relationship of opportunity between the father and the husband, okay? And people are getting saved from this background. They're coming into the church. And you also had a relationship called usus, and under Roman law, this was recognized as a marriage by common law. Uh, if a couple is living together uninterruptedly in the man's house for one year, uh, so they're considered married, so you wouldn't get married, they just experiment, and after a year, if they stayed together, it would become legal. So what happens? You come to Christ, you have a woman you've been living with for two years, you've never married her, what are you going to do? Or what if you have one common law wife in this town, and you have another common law wife in another town? And it's very much like the missionaries today who have this situation. They go into a tribal people, they begin to lead people to faith, and they start to find out that uh, they have multiple wives. And so they're dealing with these kinds of issues. These are real issues that missionaries deal with. They were real issues in Paul's time. They're real issues today, I think, out of our own culture. Because I think we're coming, we're moving more and more towards a pagan society where people are coming out of no background in the church and multiple relationships and things going on. And so these things are real, and they're important questions. And so Paul is going to have to deal with them. And uh, people in Corinth are getting saved from this background and coming into the church. And then you had this fourth arrangement, 
And this is without bringing the woman under the manus or the power of her husband. It's called San Manu. And uh, San Manu is uh, by mutual consent. And typically the woman remained part of her father's family, didn't enter into the husband's family. She, she continued to live with the father but had a relationship with the husband. And it was really like that because of the many abuses, the lack of commitment. And so it became uh, one of the primary types of marriage in the empire where the woman stayed at home but had a relationship with a man but still under her father's uh, care and, and supply. And so what happens? You come to Christ. You have one or more uh, San Manu relationships going on. You haven't married either woman or you're a woman and you've been, you, you've been living with different men or you have consented to uh, a without manus relationship uh, and stayed with your father but you have this relationship going on with the man and uh, maybe you refused to be under the hand of any man because you were involved in a woman's liberation movement in Roman times and, and people in Corinth are getting saved from all these backgrounds and they're coming into the church. And they're listening to God's requirements of one man for one woman, no other selections. You know, it's a powerful link, God, God's craftsmanship, so don't divorce, type of union. And they're looking back over their life and, and thinking, what do I do now? I mean, my life's not this. It's much more complex. And we haven't even talked about the situation with slaves, where slaves were married together for genetics to produce better slaves. And, and many scholars think that uh, in the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament uh, time, that there were many believers in the church that were slaves. And so these are all complex situations. So you have all this relationship situation. You know, um, uh, only the first one really would constitute a marriage in a somewhat biblical sense, as we would understand it with a contract and the exchanging of vows before witnesses. And so you have um, a promise and all of that. So the, the questions were given to Paul through a letter. And no doubt it dealt with his, uh, this wide variety of backgrounds of people coming into the church. So who do they belong to? Uh, do they have a right to remarry if they're single? Uh, should they stay in this coemptio or, uh, or osis relationship? And, uh, you know, what if there's more than one relationship going on at once? And what if there's some concubines involved? What if, they're, you know, what if they're, you're involved with two different men? If you're a woman, you know, divorce is widespread. What if I've been married and divorced multiple times? Can I marry again? What do I do now that I'm saved? You know, there's, there, there are concubines, mistresses, homosexuality, women's liberation. You know, Apollodorus, uh, 1st century B.C., 4th century Apollodorus, sorry, said, we have courtesans for pleasure, handmaidens for the day-to-day -day care of the body, and wives to beget legitimate children, be trusted as guardians of the house. And so you have all this stuff going on, see? You have uh, courtesans for pleasure, handmaidens for the day-to-day -day care of the body, and, and wives to have children and take care of the house. You know, moral instruction came from philosophers, not priests. Uh, Plutarch's The Education of Children would be their guide. Martial and Juvenal, first, second century, record, record many of the things that we talked about. So uh, the churches wrote Paul a letter. Uh, maybe prompted by his time with them. We don't have the questions. We just have the answers. Key to chapter 7, figuring out the questions. That's where the fun is. If you start with the answers and you apply what you know about the culture, about traditions, you can work backward to the question. So Paul answers questions about single people and married people. He, he answers questions about people living together, people married to non-believers who want to leave, people married to non-believers who want to stay, people married to believers who are still going to get a divorce but don't have any biblical ground, there's no immorality there, uh, people who have spouses who've died, uh, should they remarry or not, people who are divorced, can they remarry, those who have never married, should they marry? So Paul just finishes, you know, take, uh, taking in chapter 6, and he's talking about bro taking brothers to brothers to court, and then he lays this, as we looked at, a universal foundation about sexual purity and about use of the body, because uh, sexual immorality as a life pattern is going to destroy any relationship that you're in. So he's just saying, look, this is the overall universal uh, code for you, and warning them that they were not free to sin just because they had liberty in Christ's blood. 
that God had given some instructions, and that's what they're to follow. And then he moves, you know, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all things are lawful for me, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Just saying, you know, sexual sin can cause great loss to you. Sexual sin uh, can master you. Stay away from all these things. This is your body purchased uh, by Christ. Uh, you've joined w- with Christ as one, so uh, be holy in what you do. So he's addressing this society, steeped in sexual immorality, very high price to pay for sexual immorality. And he begins then uh, to talk about questions they sent him. So he comes right out of that. Now, we have taken the time to lay some foundation in Matthew 19. But for Paul's letter, he lays this universal foundation of sexual purity and then immediately starts to answer the questions. So some of the questions will be answered in Paul's universal guide to sexual purity. Some things are not going to be permissible for them. And so then he moves into some more complex questions. And he says this, look at verse 1, chapter 7. This is where we're going to end. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So you have this culture proffered. Every type of relationship is okay. Almost all of it is centered around a physical relationship. And all these people are coming to Christ and coming into the church with all this baggage uh, from life. So I'm just going to foreshadow a little bit because this is where Paul is going. So the, the first question is this. Is physical intimacy godly? You have all this background you have all this immorality, you have temple worship going on, you have multiple relationships with people, all this centered around an immoral relationship. Uh, only one of numerous relationships in the Roman kingdom would have even remotely resembled what we understand to be the, Ma- uh, the Malachi definition of marriage, the wife of your covenant. And so the question really is, is physical intimacy ungodly? Because of the moral corruption, because of adultery, because of fornication, because of, of homosexuality, polygamy, concubinage, uh, and all that, the cultural, the cultural tolerated all that, Uh, So their first question had to do with physical intimacy. And it's not surprising, because everything that they're bringing in as baggage had to do with a a negative relationship inside of a physical relationship. Everything that they're bringing in is connected to immorality, as Paul has described that to them. He spent 18 months there teaching them. They obviously understood some of that. So it it had been equated with sinfulness in their former way of life, uh, this terrible background, and now they're born again, their mind's full of all this garbage. Now what? And that happens today as well, beloved. I mean, two people get married out of backgrounds that are full of mistakes, or two people come to Christ who are uh, already married. And so there's lots of questions. And you don't actually see the question in print, but it's obvious from the answer that it was put forth. What does Paul say to answer that question? Well, he's going to confirm the teaching we've already had about the joy of a married relationship and give us great perspective on that because there's lots of background now that we understand what the Scripture has to say about that. And we're going to look at some other questions that they asked Paul with those answers, hopefully answer some of the questions that we will have as well. And that's where we're going as we return next time to study 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll dig into the next few verses and really get our feet wet as we see the direction Paul is going to go as he helps the church be conformed to the image of Christ and, and begin to live a life that reflective of salvation. The things are in the past, the things have been forgiven, are under the blood, and now where do you go from here? And Paul's going to help direct those uh, thoughts as he answers those questions. Let's be bow and to be dismissed in prayer, if you would, with me. A few things we have right at the end to do. It'll be fun, and so we're looking forward to that. Lord, we thank you for opportunity to be in the Word today. We are especially grateful that we could be together and be in the Word. We're grateful that uh, believers came together today and met a corporate body here at Berean, that we could enjoy the fellowship. And for those who are guests here with us, uh, we pray that that fellowship was sweet, the time in the Word was sweet, that they were encouraged. Thank you, Father, for the clear direction. Thank you for the many different backgrounds represented here. And uh, some heartache and some uh, mistake and some difficult things, and yet you have made all things new. And you have uh, given back years even that the locust ate, as you told your people, that 
where there was sorrow and destruction and loss, you've given back uh, in plenty. So, Father, we're grateful that you are a God of second chances and thirds and fourths and tenths chances and twentieths and on and on, Father, that you desire to give grace, that you uh, desire to forgive, that you uh, have made things new if we've come to faith. And we're grateful for that standing that we have. The holiness you've given us, you've given us your righteousness and declared us righteous. And so, Father, now as we look at these passages, we desire to live in a practical way righteously. That is, we walk in our life and do the things we do and say what we say and, and establish the habits and priorities of our life. Help them to come be conformed to your word. Draw us to it each day, Father, that we might be able to hold that holy standard up, both to be encouraged by the things that are true about you and always have been and will be true about you, and also to see the things where we need some work, where you have provided grace and the power by the Holy Spirit's residence in us to be changed. And so, Father, we're grateful for all those things, and we thank you even in our heart quietly right now. And so, Father, those who don't know you as a Savior who sit here and have listened to this, and it seems absurd, Father, I pray that uh, because you brought them here, you've ordained them to hear. And Lord, I pray that you begin to bring about an understanding of who you are. A God who is mad at sin all day long, but a God who has, in his mercy, given Christ as a sacrifice for that sin, that uh, their sin may be forgiven. They may confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart, God has raised him from the dead and be born again. So Father, continue to do your work. Draw people to you who don't know you, Draw us in, further in and higher up, those who know you. Help us to know your word better, to put it to work better. Help us to praise you as a matter of lifestyle, making your attributes clear in our life. That's how we give you glory. Further, as we look on down to this evening, as John brings a message tonight out of Joshua, I pray that you'll help us understand both the highs and lows of ministry, that we can take example from Joshua and your children's entrance into the land. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless that time together. And Lord, of course, on Saturday, we're excited about our outreach. I pray that you will uh, bring about uh, good fruit from our labor. Help us to put aside our fear of, of witnessing and just be obedient to giving out the gospel. I pray that you'll just ordain, go before us and ordain those people that you desire to bring into the kingdom. You already know who they are. I pray that you'll draw them. Give our people utterance. You've given us the knowledge uh, and you've given us uh, the words to say. And Lord, I pray that we'll say them with many victories on Saturday. Father, we give you praise today, the only wise God, able to deliver us to your throne without stumbling with great joy, be all glory, dominion, and power forever and ever, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said.